You're listening to the Vocal Fry Podcast, your weekly dash of voice science, pedagogy, and pop culture. Coming to you from Hawkins Labs in the Upside Down. Cool. All right, Vocal Fam, we are excited. Vocal Fam, hello. It's September the 20-somethings, I don't remember. Um, Um, Vocal Fam, we are very excited because we are doing an episode uh, unlike, I think, anything we've ever done before. Right, Sarah? Yeah, I I don't don't, think we have. I don't think so. Um, This is our first time um, in a more direct way um, uh, addressing um, inclusivity, diversity, equity, and accessibility. Mm -hmm. Um, And we are... Gosh, we're excited about it. Um, so anyway, we have a wonderful guest with us, um, and her name is Dr. Liliana Guerrero. How close did I get? Very good. Uh, Lily, welcome to Vocal Fry. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. We are excited that you are joining us, and uh, I'm very grateful to um, our good friend, Dr. Joshua Glasner, for introducing you and me. Um, You and Josh were both Nat's interns together this summer, right? That's right. Yep. And uh, Josh, actually, uh, Josh and um, Caitlin, who also was an intern with you all, will be back on the podcast in November to talk about the intern program. So that, that's an episode that we'll be doing in the coming months. Um, but we're here today, um, as we do with all of our guests, we'd really just first like to just hear about your background, tell the vocal fam who you are, sort of how, you know, what, what's your backstory about singing, about anything, and kind of what led you to where you are right now today. So please. Sure. Well, again, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm currently based in Austin, Texas. And before we begin, I just wanted to acknowledge that I occupy the space originally inhabited by the Coahuiltecan people, past and present. And I honor with gratitude the land itself and the people who have stewarded it throughout the generations. It calls me to commit myself to continuing how to learn how to be a better steward of the places that I inhabit, whether that be the voice studio, the um, opera stage, whatever it be. Um, So I just wanted to start with a land acknowledgement just because I think it's really important to um, make sure that we are acknowledging where we came from, what we have um, inherited as people over time and what we're going to do with it now. Absolutely. I originally uh, grew up in Michigan. I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan. My mother was a political refugee from Cuba, so she came here in 1969 to escape communism. Um, They ended up in Michigan just because um, a church in the diocese of Grand Rapids decided to sponsor them and provide them with housing. Um, We also had some family that was already in the area that said that they would help out. And then my dad is from Mexico and he was undocumented for a majority of my youth. Uh, He actually had his um, nationality um, changed to a US citizen the day after I graduated high school. So so yeah, so a lot of the time when people ask about, you know, why can't people come to this country the right way? Well, sometimes it takes a really long time to go through that naturalization process. 
and that and that affected the way that we moved through the world because um, you know if we leave the country to go on a vacation, what does that mean? Coming back in, um, being careful not to get in trouble with the law, um, being a good student, and so. I am basically every stereotype of like the child of immigrants, very hardworking, straight A student, little brown noser, just because that's, <laughs> what you, that's what you grow up with. Your parents sacrifice so much to provide you with the American dream and you just want to make sure that you're not squandering it. And so I see that a lot in my students. Um, I teach at Texas Lutheran University in Seguin. It's a Hispanic serving institution. Uh, a majority of our students are first generation, so they are the first ones in their family to go to college. And so the priorities of a first generation student are very different because a lot of them want to help their family out of poverty. They're going to be the first person in their family that's working like a salaried position that requires a degree. And so I find a lot of fulfillment in teaching them because they're first generation like me, they understand what it's, well, I understand what it's like to be in their position and I can I can help them out with things that maybe their parents don't understand. Um, it's a lot of really small things that you might not catch, like parents not knowing how to fill out the FAFSA or parents not understanding that practicing is homework and why would you waste time singing for an hour when you could be going to work and making money for the family. And so just having that idea and that background really helps me connect with them, which is really wonderful. Um, going back to a little bit about where I grew up and things like that, I grew up in predominantly white spaces. And so a lot of identity formation for me as I was younger was why am I different? Um, is it bad to be different? And so a lot of first generation students go through high school and early college questioning their identity, wondering, you know, is it a deficiency in me that I don't have the same upbringing as my colleagues and my, as my peers? Um, and I received a lot of information from mentors that was almost gatekeepy, you know, things like, um, if you can dye your hair lighter and stay out of the sun and be as racially ambiguous as possible, that will be better. That'll help you cast better. Or um, I'm a high soprano, so I've had a lot of um, agents, coaches tell me, please don't offer baby dough. You don't look like Beverly Sills. And we have a very specific idea of what she should look like. Or, um, you know, patrons coming up to you after concerts and saying, you should sing Carmen as though that's uh, the only thing. Yeah. <laughs> the only uh, I'm not a mezzo, but that's great. Thank you. I think it, um, and then there's almost this unspoken permission that people seem to have where they'll come up to me after concerts and say, so where are you from? Um, so what are you? And I was just a human. Um, I, I've even had someone go so far as to ask me, so are you a U.S. citizen? Oh, <laughs> think, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the microaggressions that happen to students of color in in the performing world are just um, they're almost incredulous. Like you can't believe that someone would it's have so the ball cringy. To say it yeah. really is. It really is. And then with your positionality as a student or as a young artist, you ask yourself, well, do I? push back? Do I say something? This donor has a lot of influence with this company. If I make a fuss, are they going to hire me again? Which is why it's really important for us as voice teachers to be advocates for our students so that when they don't have the power to speak up in a space because of their positionality, we can do it. Um, 
So that's why I'm really passionate about this work. I also fell into this work a lot in grad school. So I went to Florida State University, which I am a big fan of. If anyone wants a grad school to go to, I'm a big fan. <laughs> Sorry, there's the, there's the one. I won't bring up any kind of rivalry things in this entire episode, but I'm a Miami hurricane twice over, and so we'll just have that one little uh, point of contention on the podcast. But uh, other than that, uh, they're both fine music schools. Anyway, sorry, going on. That is totally fine. Um, my time at Florida State was really wonderful because obviously the school, the College of Music is great, but they also have a really wonderful center for leadership and social change. So I spent about half my time at the College of Music and half my time at the center. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And I got um, a certification in diversity, inclusion and equity from the center. So I graduated with a doctorate plus certificate. And while I was doing work in the center, that's where most of my social justice and DEI formation happened. So they had a program called Allies in Safe Zones, which was a program that they offered to faculty and staff in um, LGBTQIA2S plus issues asking, Uh you know, how can I make my space more equitable and welcoming to students? And, you know, teaching them the basics of language, the gender-bred person, the difference between sex and gender, things like that. And then they also let me help run the Multicultural Leadership Summit, which was a two-day conference in January where we pulled in speakers and we reached out to the community, not just in Florida, but in also South Georgia, Southern Alabama, and got students to come in and talk about these kind of issues. Um, My specialty was reaching into the portions of rural Georgia and reaching out to the migrant populations there. So a lot of first-gen mm-hmm. students there who are, yeah, a lot of first-gen students who are um, the children of migrant workers who are the first in their family to go to college. And so we brought them in and it was really interesting to see them have a space to talk about the issues that they uniquely face. And then also I did a lot of uh, bystander intervention training. So again, in cultivating your allyship, when there is an issue, what are you going to do to make sure that you can step in and help with an intervention by deflecting or um, delegating tasks to someone else just to protect students? So I think all of that stuff is really important as teachers so that we can help our students. Anyway, my doctoral treatise was on uh, Latina composers in the United States and their art song literature. A lot of them are majority unpublished or self-published. There are the standouts like Tania Leon and Gabriela Lina Frank, but a lot of these women, um, people don't know who they are. And so I've created a little database of art song by Latina composers and advocating for the fact that that repertoire is intersectional in that it is American music, but it is also Latin American music. And what that means, especially as our demographic in the United States changes by 2060, um, Hispanic or Latinx identifying people are going to start becoming a majority of our country. And so we had a conversation during my doctoral um, defense about how the United States can start to be seen as the 34th Latin American country just because of how many people here in the US identify as Latinx or Hispanic. After that, I uh, was a faculty first look scholar at NYU Steinhardt. That is a program that they do for first generation um, Black, Latinx, and Indigenous PhD terminal degree holders. 
um, to get them into the academy because as we know a lot of the academy right now is predominantly white and so we need different faces to accommodate the students who are coming in this new generation is a lot more diverse than we have ever seen before and this year the cleveland institute of music has also started their own program that's very similar to nyu's program it's called the future of music faculty and i'm also a fellow in that so again um, specifically looking at black and latinx music faculty across all disciplines and what we can be doing to cultivate more inclusion and equity in the music schools across the country and just providing some representation for our students who so so badly want that um, and then the last thing that I do that's really exciting is I'm an art song advisor for the Institute for Composer Diversity. So that extends out of my work that I did with my doctoral treatise, providing information for that database. So if people are looking for a living Latina composer in the United States and they want to program some music for mezzo and flute or something like that, I'm the one that's inputting that information specifically um, in the art song realm. There's a group of about 10 of us. so. I really enjoy all of that work and how it intersects with my passions for social justice and music. I think it's That's a cool. I think it's a beautiful career path that you've cultivated um, that is both uh, appropriate and, and and also meaningful. Um, uh, you just uh, before I go on to what I wanted to get to, you mentioned the database that you created. How can people access that? Right now, it's just the last, it's an appendix in my treatise. Okay. <laughs> um, I keep Is meaning to turn it into an article for the Journal of Singing. It just hasn't happened. Um, so people can just email me directly, and I'm always happy to share it. Okay, oh, cool. perfect. And, and that, do you mind sharing that email address, your professional email address? Yeah, it's lguerrero, L-G-U-E-R-R-E-R-O at T-L-U dot E-D-U. Brilliant. Um, is, the, is, the, is the dissertation on ProQuest? Could they access the... The whole thing yes. on ProQuest? Yeah, perfect. Yes, it is. Um, yeah, cool. Um, okay, so it, awesome. I mean, I just think you're amazing. Um, something you said, so you were also part of the, what do we call it, plenary session on diversity, equity, inclusion from the 2020 virtual conference that we did at, yes. the, at the national conference. Um, you said something on that in your in your session on that that I thought was really beautiful. And that was something that you said that we voice teachers could do, which was actively recruiting students that don't look like us. Absolutely. Um, you know, talk a little bit about that, but also like, what are some of the things that those of us perhaps look vocal fam? I know this is a radio show, but uh, Sarah and I are both white we acknowledge it and so this is something that we need to learn about our own blind spots and our own things but in that regard just what 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 can any of us do who are in the trenches in the studio whether we're in the academy or not what are some of the things that maybe we don't we're not aware of right away some of the blind spots some of the things that we should be doing as a studio teacher in our recruitment in our actual teaching what have you Absolutely. Uh, one strategy that I've started to implement this past year is looking more at Title I schools, high schools. Uh, mm. I predominantly teach undergraduate students. And so 
When you go to things like college fairs, a lot of the time, for example, TMEA is a big recruitment yeah. tool that we have yeah. here in Texas. However, to go to TMEA, you have to pay a registration fee, which already cuts out a lot of potential students that you may be missing because there's an equity and access issue there. Yep. So what are you so what are you doing to make yourself known to students who don't have access to the spaces that you regularly frequent? Are you going into their schools and um, giving a master class there or talking to them there instead of expecting them to come to you? Um, I think a lot about how uh, a lot of the old school method of getting students into opera would be like to bus students from the inner city downtown and have them sit in the opera house. And it, it is this really great experience of, you know, for the first time leaving your neighborhood and seeing this grandiose thing but you are still othered when someone takes you out of your space and puts you yeah. in their space. And so what would it look like if you flipped that model and you entered their space where they are more comfortable and where they may feel more open to hearing what you have to say because they're not, their brain isn't inundated with, I don't belong in this space, this yeah. isn't for me, I'm the other right now. So that's a really um, easy thing that everyone can do. Just making sure that you're not missing students by not reaching out to them. The other thing is understanding the difference between individualist cultures and collectivist cultures. There's a woman named Juana Bordas. She lives in Tampa. She's the um, founder of Mestiza Leadership International. Uh, she works a lot with Latinx leadership development and things like that. And she talks about how when you're looking at a prospective student, you're going to have students who are coming in with more individualist ideologies of, you know, I want to be a better singer, I want to sing at the Met, um, me, 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 and they don't have to worry about anything else versus uh, students who may be coming from spaces that I'm more familiar with, collectivist cultures. Um, my success is indicative of my entire community. I am working towards something better for all of us instead of just me. And there's a lot riding on that. And so understanding that students may have different needs coming in and what that might look like and how you present your space. So mm. things like um, in your email signature, you know, it's really easy to just throw your pronouns in there and make sure that people understand that. This is a language that I'm familiar with. Some people ask me, isn't that virtue signaling if I put my pronouns in? Absolutely not, because then students will see that and say, okay, this is a safe person that I can reach out to. Um, you can make sure that you're programming music when you go out into the community that is diverse and isn't just um, you know, the standard repertoire that we know now. Um, that's another easy thing that you can do. You can make sure that when you do program these recitals that you look for spaces where you will be getting different audience members than you may usually get. If you're always having your recital downtown at a swanky place that charges a lot of money for admission, again, mm -hmm. you're not going to be getting students that wouldn't normally come to your recital if that's, only, that's the only places that you're ever frequenting. Right. And then, um, I think the other thing too is just a lot of students get acquainted with future teachers through Nats and doing the Nats auditions and just being really careful with the kinds of things that people write on the judging forms. Yeah. Please, um, and, please and amen. Yeah, this is like a very hot topic that I am very passionate about, especially when it comes to body policing. Um, 
So, so most of the time when we talk about DEI, people are usually talking about race, gender, um, or sexual orientation, but there are other things too, you know, neurodivergency, um, body shaming, um, uh, ability, disability. And so, you know, things like making sure that you're not body policing your students and making comments about their audition attire. I've heard so many little offhanded remarks that maybe Preach. didn't get written, but they're really harmful. And I think a lot of the time teachers say those things because they think that it's helpful. You know, mm-hmm. my teacher gave me tough love. And so I'm only giving you tough love because I don't want you to hear it from someone else when it's gonna matter. That's just gatekeeping. As Audrey yeah. Lord would say, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. That old way of thinking is dying out. And so now this new generation, we have the opportunity to change that. So instead of saying, I was abused, so you're gonna be abused so you can get through it too, we're gonna say, I was abused and I'm gonna make sure that you aren't. And I have the power to change that. You know, I have practically no place to speak at all about my own experiences on this on this episode. Um, but I will s- just say that that uh, the body shaming is the only place that I can really say that I fully understand that perspective and it and the harm that it can do psychologically. Because I was, yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember my first day on campus as a second year apprentice in Santa Fe and the general director coming up to me and saying, boy, you've put on a lot of weight as the very first thing that was said to me. Um, so, uh, I, I, that, that's, uh, yeah, we, we do need to be careful. Can we go back, um, something that you mentioned in, a, in that wonderful list of things? And I think that was great. And vocal fam, you should write that down. Everything she just said, you should write it down. I took some notes myself. Um, one of the hot topics that comes up in addition to adjudic- the way we adjudicate um, in, in this regard is repertoire mm-hmm. and repertoire choice and not just repertoire, but like just even uh, styles of music itself, perhaps. Uh, I'm interested in your take on this discussion. You know, we keep hearing sort of the buzzwords of the moment, decolonizing the repertoire, things of this nature. Can can you talk a little bit about your perspective on that? The way that I decolonize my repertoire, if you will, um, is looking at the way that we adjudicate juries in the undergraduate setting. So a lot, the way that I was raised was you had to have German, Italian, French, English, and, you know, across all eras and, you know, styles, but within styles, we're really talking only about Western classical European styles. And so I, I, Sorry, and you had and you, and you had to practice them by doing what, Sarah? Singing a five-note five scale on a lip trill. Sorry, we have an ongoing joke about the only thing you can do in a voice lesson. It's not a voice lesson if you didn't do a five-note scale on a lip trill. Anyway, sorry. Please continue on. Exactly, exactly. And so um, I'm not sure if that really works anymore. And the reason I say that is because we're teaching students all of this music and then they're going out and having careers as 
church musicians, as pop musicians, they're singing karaoke, they're working in elementary schools where they sing predominantly music theater and they need to know that repertoire. And so are we, are we really servicing our students to the best of our ability to work in the 21st century if we're only offering them that specific repertoire? And I no. think the answer is no. Yeah. Um, so for my students, every semester, everybody gets, you know, those standards, English, French, Italian, German, but we also do a Spanish art song every semester because that is right. not a language that is secondary. That is a language oh. we need to know, especially here in Texas. Oh Everyone gets a spiritual. Um, and the spiritual is not in substitution of an art song. Everyone has to sing a spiritual every semester. And we talk about, you know, there's sometimes there's pushback of, well, Dr. Guerrero, are you really sure I should be singing this music? I'm not black. I don't have this lived experience. And then we have to have a conversation about how, well, if we de delegate that music to a very specific population, then what happens is we aren't able to celebrate that music and it dies out. And it is part of our history as Americans. And so whether or not you feel pride or shame or whatever whatever it may be about that, we still have a duty to perform this repertoire and keep it alive. And there's a really wonderful Nats article by um, Caroline Helton and Emery Stevens um, called Singing Down the Barriers. And it's a specific article that references, you know, um, what do I need to do as a non-Black teacher teaching non-Black students spirituals? What is the historical context that I need to understand? What, um, if we're doing dialect, you know, talking to Manita Daniel Cox and seeing what kind of things that she can help with, you know, not being afraid to teach things just because we didn't have the experience of learning it. And then also everyone gets a music theater song just because again, that's gonna be a lot of what they're singing when they leave school. And I don't shy away from students who wanna sing in popular music as well. We have to make sure that we can get through the jury requirements because of NASM. But after that, if you wanna sing some pop music, let's try it because that's gonna be the kind of stuff that you're singing after you leave here. And I don't want you to I do you a disservice if all you have done is sing Schubert and Brahms and then you leave yeah. here and are asked to sing other things. So I'll I be honest. Agree. <laughs> my my freshman Bachelor of Arts majors, it, whether they're in our music degree or worship leadership degree, either one, their first semester repertoire is a foreign language art song so we can get going in some sort of foreign language and get used to language and they learn a musical theater song and they learn a pop song. Um, that is their, uh, uh, and it might vary from there, maybe a spiritual, maybe a whatever, but but I mean, we always, um, they, they, for the first two semesters, I mean, that's that's what it is right off the bat, so. Um, anyway, I, I just, I th thank you for your thoughts on that. Um, the, the, and I was glad to hear you, you bring up the spiritual question, particularly because it's one that I have heard um, many of our colleagues who are people of color share that pers particular perspective mm -hmm. that you just shared. Um, I've also heard the opposite. And so thank you for, for your thoughts on that. Um, Cause that's a, that's a, a really, a, a really rich history of song literature that if, it's if for some reason we couldn't do it really eliminates a, a, a large sort of culture lost. Um, 
you brought up an interesting point in your in your comments um, from the the panel. I'm going back to the panel for a second about some wonderful mentorship and help you got sort of not not just navigating perhaps comments about appearance or things like this which you just mentioned but also beginning to help you navigate into the world of higher ed and I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit absolutely so again plug for Florida State Dr. Marcia Porter was a wonderful mentor to me she still is um and then now with the Cleveland Institute of Music, my mentor there is Dr. Louise Toppin at the University of Michigan. And it's just very refreshing to have a mentor that I can speak to that understands what it means to occupy a space that hasn't previously been open to you or particularly welcoming to you. So something that students deal with and I deal with myself as well as you know faculty is something called code switching. So understanding that the way that I move through the world in spaces that are occupied by majority Latino people is going to be different than the way that I occupy space in the ivory tower of academia and what that looks like. Um, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about it as double consciousness. This idea of feeling like you have to be a different person or change yourself in order to Uh. fit the narrative And so a lot of that has to do with proximity to whiteness, um, privilege, um, you know, your background, how you were raised, where you were raised, the way that you speak, um, and the microaggressions that may come with that. So things like, oh, well, I've I've had people say to me, well, I don't think of you as Latina because you're not like the rest of them. Or, well, you're very articulate (laughs) and you speak very good English. And so there's just all of these little, yes, I know, (laughs) all of these little microaggressions that happen. And when you are an untenured young woman of color in higher education, you have to know when can I push back on that? When do I need to just say, okay, thank you and move <laughs> on and know that that person is not a safe, a safe person that you want to interact with. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also want to say just for a really quick second that not all people of color or BIPOC people have training in anti-racism, critical race theory, post-colonial thought. And so sometimes you will run into people where their own individual lived experience is not reflective of everyone right. else. And right. we have to remember that people of color are not a monolith. And so Sometimes I run into people who say, well, I don't have that issue. Well, no one treats me that way. Well, I'm really grateful that that doesn't happen to you. Unfortunately, it does happen to me. And just because it doesn't happen to you doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. We and run so, into this also in the in the that the same thing happens in the different experiences that women face, because some women in their experience. Fa- so anyway, yes, a hundred percent. Moving on. Sorry. No, that's that's absolutely fine. Um, And so it was just really wonderful to have those kind of mentors because that's not something particularly part of the curriculum when you're becoming a a doctor, when you're a doctoral student and you're looking toward becoming a professor and joining the the academy. It's not just as common as looking at a CV with you. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And we have conversations about, you know, um, so 
my full name is actually Liliana, but I go by Lily because it's easier for people to pronounce. And in some spaces, it's just, you know, it's a little bit of residual from when I was younger and people would say, try to make yourself as ethnically ambiguous as possible. Yeah. And so there's just all of these little things that you have to navigate that no one tells you about. And if you don't experience it yourself, you're not going to realize that it's happening. And so I'm just so grateful to those mentors which is why programs like the Cleveland Institute of Music, Future Music Faculty Fellowship is so important because it's a space where we can get together, talk about these microaggressions, talk about unique problems that we face in the academy and get solutions from other people who have already been through it. Absolutely. Um, gosh, I, I have so many questions that I'd love to get to. Um, what so on the flip side you are now in the academy you have an academic position okay and you are a voice teacher <laughs> obviously also singer what would you say i'm going to do this one first what would be like you hear you have a platform to say whatever you wish what would you say to a young bipoc individual who is maybe aspiring to get into this field right now what like what might you say as a piece of advice to them right now if they're listening or encouragement or something i have all of these little one-liners that i've accumulated throughout my <laughs> throughout my years i think about uh you can't be what you can't see representation matters continuing to lift while we climb and oh. i just i just think about when I was young and I didn't see anyone who looked like me, I wasn't sure that the space was for me. Mm -hmm. And so you being who you are in a space that hasn't traditionally been for you is a radical act that gives students hope. That tells them, I understand in the past that this hasn't been a place for you, but I'm telling you that now it is. And I'm not going to gatekeep it. Just because I have arrived, just because I have gotten here, doesn't mean that we're done. Now it means I lower the ladder to you and you climb up and then you lower the ladder to the next person so that we make sure that just because we have a seat at the table, that's not enough. We have to make sure that there are more seats at the table and that it's not a thing of, okay, well, we're just gonna have tokens and we have our one black professor and our one Asian professor and our one Latina uh, professor. No, we have to look and see, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg once was asked, when will there be enough women in the Supreme Court? And she said, when there are 12. And so what would uh. that look like? What would that look like in higher education if instead of looking at voice teachers you said, oh, well, we have, you know, we're still majority white and we all know it in Nats, we're majority white women, um, but we have a couple and that's great. Well, what would it look like if that couple turned into the majority? What would that change about the way that we assign repertoire or the types of students that we attract to our studios and things like that? And so I think visibility is just so important and knowing that you occupying that space is just a radical act of importance to young students. Sarah, when I when I put together the clip show from season five and six, is this another make clip? sure that <laughs> make sure that ninety seconds That's... is in there, please. Um, thank you for that. Um, that you know, one of the things that uh, lift while while we climb has always been one of my things that has been very important to me. 
um, as I've tried to do for any former students or graduate students who uh, might might or might not be in the room. Um, uh, but you know, when most of us who are, this is not necessarily about race at the moment, but when most of us who got into voice science got into voice science many years ago, it was kind of like a whole bunch of white men. And we, you know, one of our, some of our goals has because, but, and yet, predominantly my graduate students over the years have been women <laughs> for the last many. And so True. we've been trying to do a lot to uh, make sure that we are creating space uh, within the very ridiculously, stupidly highbrow thing of voice science, which takes itself too seriously most of the time. Um, uh, not I, so Please. Oh, so, okay. We've already, I know we've mentioned, like, we're white, obviously. And I was curious if you had any, like, advice as far as, as white people. Let's say we're teaching a student who's coming from a different background. Do you have, like, some go-to resources that you think are good for both teachers? And then I would think to point to students, like, hey, I get that I don't have the experiences that you've had. You're going to have a different experience going through undergrad, graduate school than I had. And, like, here are some things that can help navigate that. Absolutely. So because we were talking about how Nats is predominantly white and female, there's a really great journal article called When White Women Cry, How White Women's Tears Oppress Women of Color. It's by Matma Akapadi. Her last name okay. is spelled A-C-C-A-P-A-D-I. And it's a really wonderful article about how we as people, when we are faced with a situation where we might have inadvertently done something to harm someone else, we avoid accountability by reframing ourselves as the victim and centering ourselves and saying, well, I, don't, I didn't mean to and I don't understand. And then we end up putting that other p person in a position where they have to comfort you yeah. because you're upset. And so I think that's a really great place to start. I also think that just keeping up with all of this kind of information is really important. All this DEI language, it's always evolving. Um, another one of my little 25 cent phrases that I love is even the woke sleep once a day. So <laughs> I, I would hope that no one listening would teach outdated vocal pedagogy in the same way. I would hope that you would not go to one DEI session and say, okay, I learned everything there is well, to I'm learn. An expert. <laughs> exactly. It's always constantly evolving. And so Nats is doing a really great job of providing this kind of information to teachers. There is the DEI toolkit, which is already available on the Nats website, which looks beautiful. They just updated it this week. New website. Um, that's a, yeah, it's a really great start of um, why are we doing this? Why is this important? Here are a couple of do's and don'ts. It's a great introductory, introductory piece into this work. That's exactly and right. Then, it's a great start. Yes, yes. And um, as a member of the Nats Diversity and Inclusion Task Force, um, we have been meeting with Teresa Ruth Howard to create these modules. Right now we're in the process of, Teresa is providing us with the materials, we're looking through them. Um, 
you know, giving her materials that maybe we think should be added or clarified. And that information is going to go out to all Nats members so that you don't have to wonder, where do I get this information? Nats is going to provide it for you. All you have to do is show up and consume it. So that's going to be a really, yes, it's going to be a really lovely streamlined way to get this information that perhaps you just didn't understand because you come from a place of privilege. And we don't have I a also, timeline. We don't have a timeline on that vocal fam. Just, just FYI, yes. the task force, Lily and I are both on it. There's no timeline for that yet. It's coming, but just stay, stay patient. Don't I, expect I would, it in my email I would, tomorrow. No, <laughs> but I would definitely expect it out before the national conference, probably oh, cool. um, since, since we're in a national conference year for next summer. But, but anyway, don't, but anyway, yes. And, and also on that point, just to clarify on that, um, Teresa is an external hired professional consultant in DEI matters. So it's not like Nats just sought someone out from within the organization. This was actually a thought out uh, professional person who works in these matters who was was hired um, for, for good reason. Um, anyway, sorry, go on. No, that's that's perfect. And so then again, because we were talking about how DEI extends more beyond race, gender, sexual orientation, um, what kind of information are you consuming from the industry that may be another thing that's a DEI or equity issue? Um, Tracy Cox is doing really wonderful work in the avenue of um, fat phobia and reclaiming the word fat and all these um, body identity stuff that's happening in the opera industry right now. So she's a really wonderful resource to be using and just consuming that information. And then finally, I just ask you, what what kind of content do you consume in your free time? You know, as artists, we're storytellers. Mm. That That's our, our main thing. And so even if you live in a place that's really homogenous and you interact with people who look like you and you are friends with people who look like you, that's not really an excuse to not understand or at least have familiarity with other stories. So just as an example, this week, I love TV. I love Netflix and all that kind of stuff. And so you're making a great transition Lily. this is a great transition i didn't even have to when they do it themselves sarah and i don't even have to say anything it's the best sorry go on yes please no, you're totally please, fine. please tell our pop culture audience what you've been consuming uh so this past monday was the season finale of a show called reservation dogs which is on hulu mm. it's an fx show and it's a it's a comedy slash coming of age story about indigenous student uh not students look at me being a professor indigenous high school kids in oklahoma teenagers yes teenagers and and it's a really interesting look at what is it like to be an indigenous person that lives on a reservation what is it like to um what kind of unique struggles do they have what is their family structure like things like that um dear white people just came out with their final season i'm excited to binge that this weekend the other show that I came out this week that I'm really excited about is season two of Love on the Spectrum, oh, which I don't is know about. I, I, I've not heard of that one. Oh my gosh, it's so I love it. It's so wholesome. It's it's a show that follows neurodivergent teenagers in Australia on their oh. dating journey. I yeah, I, that's, and, this is the first I've heard of this one. I, the other two I knew, but this, this not this one. Yeah, so this one's on Netflix, and it's really interesting because I have two neurodivergent students myself, and being a neurotypical person, sometimes I don't understand why they do what they do or, you know, some of the, the things that are 
the ways that they function in the classroom. And so it's really fun to just kind of get an introduction into their life and hear other stories. Because again, it's not my story, but I have a responsibility as an artist to hear other stories and to make sure that my palette that I color with when I create my art is as diverse as it can be. And yeah, I think, and then Ted Lasso, the season finale is today. I'm really excited about that. So I'm going to be binging a lot of TV this weekend. Maybe y'all will be watching the same things as me. I'm, 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 I'm dying that I, a year ago, I, I was so unconvinced by Apple TV Plus that I got rid of it. It's the only <laughs> streaming service I think we don't have. Um, and uh, so I can't watch Ted Lasso and I'm so disappointed about it. It's really great. If I can make you a convert, like get a free month of Apple TV, binge it, just and then binge cancel. it. <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, I did just partially destroy my charging port on my iPhone. So, uh, oh, yes, yeah. if yesterday, you get the new one, you get, get an, the free, right, um, free like, year of Apple TV Plus. And we could, uh, anyway. It's a good, good argument for the new phone. Well, listen, Vocal Fam, I did not coach Lily on that remarkable transition that she made to pop culture at all. That was great. That might have been our smoothest transition ever. Very natural. Long time listener, first time caller, so. Fantastic. You've listened to our show before? Absolutely. (gasps) <laughs> well, now I'm just going to blush. Um, fantastic. Uh, well, listen, um, Lily, thank you so much for your expertise. This is a, a vast topic, and I'm so glad mm-hmm. that you said something that, one, I think Nats as an organization is kind of just starting this journey. You know, we're just sort of, you know, uh, like we talked about the toolkit being a good start. Also, Vocal Fam, if you are out there and you're listening to this, and something Teresa said, I think the first session that we did, I don't think it was this last one, but I think it was the first session, was like, you know, we need to all either be a part of the work or we're, you know, sort of the opposite of that. Hmm. And But it's also, this is kind of like learning how to sing in a way, right? Like, we never arrive as a singer, like, ever. Right? Like, we can all agree right. on that. Like, yeah. none of us ever arrive as a singer. Right. I don't think we arrive as a voice teacher either. And we don't really arrive at this pers- at this place where we are the perfect situation of perfectly engaging in diversity. Like, I, I, like I, I, I think it's an evolving... We need to just... We, we need to engage. We need to engage and not be silent if we see something and um but it, you know like i one of the things like on my heart that she shared that first night was like i don't want to also go overboard and try to be some white savior or something that i'm <laughs> not because i have my own microaggressions that i probably can't even see um you know and so this is just it's a journey right it's a it like learning to sing and learning to teach voice it's a journey and so um Anyway, thank you so much for your time today. Thank uh, you for having me. This is this is an episode that that I need to make sure that that the vocal fam definitely gets shared. So we'll share this far and wide. Mm-hmm. Um, so all right, vocal fam, Sarah, what'd you have for breakfast? Oh, uh, 
was just a granola bar. It wasn't anything fancy. That's how far we are into the semester, vocal fans. Sarah's grabbing bar. cookies for breakfast. No, this was a legitimate no, granola bar. No, I'm pretty bar. sure it was a cookie. It was a granola bar. It was a cookie. There was granola in it and almonds. There's and never been granola in a cookie, vocal fam. No, look, this was a granola bar. It was legitimately a granola bar. It really was. I wish it was a cookie. I would have rather eaten a cookie. <sighs> okay. Anyway, uh, we're very excited this weekend. We're celebrating my son's 12th birthday. I can't believe it. And you 12. know what that means, Vocal Fam? 12. 12 means that they can get vaccinated. Oh. <laughs> um, so Woo-hoo. Monday, shot number one, and Perna will actually breathe for the first time in 19 months. Uh, Anyway, okay, Vocal Fam, that is it for us. We are out. Peace. Peace.